Welcome back, everybody. I'm Jonathan Bollinger. Thanks for joining me again for another mini episode of Inside the Box, the TV history podcast. It's great again to be with you. And uh, thanks again for those of you who are also tuning in to the Mining the Archive Mondays. Uh, It's been a lot of fun to release some of the old episodes to give you a taste of what types of shows we did in the beginning. And I believe last time you joined us, we uh, released the uh, 33 and a third Revolutions uh, uh, Monkeys special that is a real favorite of Steve's. So I'm glad if you did listen to that, I hope you enjoyed that because we certainly enjoyed making it. And uh, today we're going to continue with this theme of a mini episode where, again, as I told you, if you've been listening as we, we've started this up again at the beginning of, of this summer, it's a bit of a, a grabble, to be honest with you, right? Right now, it's a way for me to kind of go down certain topic uh, paths or rabbit holes uh, that, honestly, there's no real rhyme or reason to it other than things that I'm thinking about that sort of happens uh, within research is that, yes, you have a, a, a sort of focus but you get interested in certain subtopics and see how they combine or connect to what you're working on. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit more in a second about the, the main topic at hand here, but I just want to also mention that obviously we're getting ready for our brand new full season that's going to start just in a few weeks in the fall. And I know we try not to, to, to uh, set these episodes in any sort of particular time so that they're as evergreen as possible. But honestly, sometimes if in the future, you know, I'd want to listen back on any of these, it wouldn't be too bad to have little sort of clues, little sort of traces of when exactly we're recording certain things. So obviously we're going to have the full season coming up and we're recording some of that now. And I'll just simply say it's been a lot of fun to sit down with some of our guests and talk about some really interesting topics. And as always, just realize some of the, the episodes we do are on sort of the lighter, lighter end of things, and others are very sort of serious. Uh, so, and I probably have said this in some other other episode, but you know, as as ridiculous in some ways as the 1980s talk famous talk show host uh, uh, Donahue was, I always thought he said something very smart, and I want to say he said it in the late 80s, but I'd have to double check that. But basically, some one time somebody said to him, or I should say asked him, you know, why do you do all these crazy shows? You know, this, the, the type of topics we think of that are so often associated with, with daytime or daytime trashy talk shows. And I'm, I'm going to bastardize this a little bit, but his basic idea was something like, look, if I want to do an episode on the Iran-Contra affair on Friday, I have to on Thursday, do something about, you know, you know, it's probably more weird to help, but, you know, like neo-Nazi nuns, you know, who, who, who are also bank thieves or whatever. Uh, you know, you have to sort of, his idea was you had to do sort of the lighter stuff to kind of get the audience and then, and then hopefully they'll stay around or you'll have the ratings to do something a little ser- more serious. So, uh, that's also the fact that there's three hosts on this on this podcast. So we all have different interests and different focus focuses or foci. So some episodes are going to be a little more serious, some are a little a little lighter, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay. So also just remind you, as I always say, uh, thanks those of you who have signed up for the Patreon, so you do get access to the full archive. 
Also remember that in the fall, when we do the new free episodes, we'll also do some new Patreon-only episodes. So if you want to donate a couple of bucks to the Patreon, you will get access to both the archive, full archive, and also all the brand new Patreon-only bonus episodes. Okay? All right. So let's get right into it uh, then. So if you listened last time when I talked about Turn On... I believe I mentioned that I was thinking about weirdly doing an episode about one of the larger comedy stars of the 20th century, or more specifically the 1950s and the early 1960s, and that is Jerry Lewis. Now, why? (laughs) Why? Because honestly, I'm not some huge Jerry Lewis fan. Uh, he certainly was, and I'll talk about this in a second, he was certainly past his prime by the time I was growing up. But the reason for it is, is I think any time you engage with a topic is, it's not that you can't just enjoy it for enjoyment's sake, right, on the quote-unquote surface level, but particularly when you're an academic, you try your best to kind of dig underneath it a bit, to deconstruct it a little bit, to make connections or, or, or do some synthesis uh, across some different uh, different cultural values uh, or the wider cultural context, uh, certain symbolism, etc. So when I bring up Lewis today, it's not just this random, or I hope it's not just some random sort of shallow, oh yeah, Jerry Lewis, blah, 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 he was famous, yep, okay, blah, 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 this worked, this didn't work, da, da, da. Rather, what's interesting to me, and I realize if we have younger folks listening, the reason I bring up because this guy was absolutely uh, excellence, represented excellence in his particular type of humor in his particular moment of his youth, right? This guy was critically acclaimed, fabulously successful, uh, um, and wealthy from it. And anytime that happens, I think that in and of itself justifies our interests, right? Like, how does someone achieve that level of success? How do they sort of hit their cultural moment so succinctly, so perfectly? I, I, I think that makes the, the, the subject fascinating in and of itself. But then the other theme for me that's driving why I want to talk about this briefly today, and remember, these are mini episodes, so I'm not going to go too long on this, is that when you so perfectly hit your moment, and there's lots of examples, and I'm sure you have them in your head right now, but I'll go through just a couple of them, right? Your Orson Welles, who kind of does a lot of his masterpieces by the time he was like, I think he was like 25 or 27. Certain musicians that same age, right? Early 20s. What happens when time continues? And you age and you move on and you were so right. You were so on it. You had your finger on the pulse of the cultural moment, but now you don't. That must be a particularly fascinating and yet frustrating moment to be in, right? Like I think of biographies or or interviews that I've, I've read or listened to about certain musicians and with their, if they're being honest and they were on top, like on top, on top, and they were songwriters, they will say to you like, hey, at that time, during that moment, you know, say it's like those three albums that are considered, you know, masterpieces or whatever. They'd say like, yeah, 
I pretty much knew this was going to be a hit. I just knew. Like, I was not guessing at it. And I don't mean like that when they're starting out in that early confidence of like, well, of course it's going to be a hit. And that's sort of what helps propel them forward. But I mean, like, once they've had a few hits and, and they're sort of in that pocket, it's like it's almost like a, a baseball hitter, you know, who's really, really in their in their prime, in their moment. And they're kind of almost calling their shot like, yeah, this one's going over the fence on the left side, like like pretty much calling it. You know, that's interesting to me. So Lewis was sort of at that at that time of he uh, and I'll do this real quick. You know, he started out as, as part of the duo with Dean Martin and fabulously successful at that nightclubs on radio, on TV, uh, and and then he transitions after, you know, a really bitter breakup with Dean Martin. He goes on, stars in films himself, more importantly, starts directing himself in films, and he has uh, two or three, I always forget uh, whether they were all massively successful or they started to taper off. I know the later, later ones certainly taper off, but in the early 60s, he has like two or three mega hits which cements him as, you know, this sort of wonderkind. So that's what's driving this topic for me today, which is how does somebody who hits that level of excellence, what happens when the sort of cultural moment moves on? And what happens as you're almost like fighting yourself? And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But let's get right into the focus here. So I'm looking at something called The Jerry Lewis Show. And for the purpose, rather, not the porpoise, (laughs) for the purpose of a TV history podcast, what's interesting here is this is a show concept that he tried three different times. And I think it's a really good way to look at that idea of sort of being in the moment, capturing the moment, guiding the moment, and then slowly fading out of that moment and never really catching back on or or latching back on. So real quick, what I want to say is, again, I'm not a Jerry Lewis expert. If you're listening to this and you are, feel free to correct me on a bunch of points. But because he was just so massively successful, I was certainly at least, and I loved comedy as a kid, I was certainly aware of who he was. I, I couldn't sit there and, and quote you Bible and verse of all his routines like I could newer comics or at least of an older generation, right? I could certainly tell you about certain original SNL sketches or what Steve Martin had done or eventually Bill Murray and all that sort of thing or a, a, a Phil Hartman or whoever. But I knew the basics. And so here is, here's the basic biographical career footnotes that I think most people know if you have a basic familiarity with Lewis. And I had said already before, right? So Martin Lewis, super successful duo, comedy duo, films, TV appearances, nightclub act, radio, and basically in the inverse order of that, right? Starting with with, uh, uh, live and then radio and then films and then eventually TV. Then, as I said, he goes off solo success, film success rather, and also credited for starting to use video playback so he could help guide his own performances when he was directing himself. And then famously, he gets involved with Muscular Dystrophy Association and does the telethon for years. And then, you know, his career is pretty much dead. I don't mean to be crass, but, you know, his career is pretty much dead by the late 70s. 
And then he has this nice sort of career comeback moment in Scorsese's uh, King of Comedy. And if we do have younger listeners, uh, and you probably already know this, but if you were really into that Joker movie, you know, look at Scorsese's films. And if you're a fan of the weird sort of, I'll call it, I don't know if it's actually called this, but the cringe comedy of like An Office or Ricky Gervais, watch King of Comedy uh, because there's so many cringeworthy moments there of the way De Niro plays that character and how he's interacting with Jerry Lewis, etc. But that was that was it, right? I would have said to you, those are that's what he did. He probably made a ton of money, kind of drifted off into the 70s and 80s, and he either wanted to work or maybe he couldn't work, but he didn't really need to because he's so fabulously wealthy, blah, blah, blah. But what I figured out when I was doing some research for this uh, episode, <laughs> Jerry Lewis did a lot of crap. Like he, There's so much work that he did, so many TV shows that he would just randomly pop up on or or bad French films, etc. And I, obviously I know, you know, that's the other thing I didn't mention, obviously. The joke is the French love Jerry Lewis, right? He's a genius, da 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 and, and, and I know Martin Short's send-up of him on SCTV better than most people. But I just didn't realize he showed up in so much stuff, and apparently it's because he, he lived a very extravagant lifestyle. But I th- the reason I bring that up is because I think it it shows that part of him which is he so needed to be in front of an audience and part of him knew that he had been a successful, right? That he could do it, not just do it, but, but, but just blow everyone away. So why wouldn't he think, why wouldn't he have that confidence to go back and back and back and back, right? And, and it kind of reminds me as far as like a quote unquote needy performer is, you know, I always got that impression with Jim Carrey, right? Jim Carrey just seems like he always needs an audience. And when he does have an audience, like he never is shy about it. Like he goes, no matter how accomplished the guy it becomes, he just has to squeeze every ounce of attention and applause and, and vindication or whatever from his audience. And Lewis feels like that as well. So last thing, and then we'll 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 get into the Jerry Lewis show as our as our as our finale here. So What's interesting with Lewis, and again, I'll leave it to the full scholars to tell me whether I'm right or wrong, but my guess here with Lewis is that he's so bright, he's so confident, and especially after he's proven successful, that that he, he comes up with a problem. And the problem is that a lot of his humor, a lot of his success came when he was a young comic with a young energy. And there's a playfulness, there's an impishness to him that is endearing, particularly of that time of the 50s, of that kind of culture, that post-war culture, that especially when playing off of of Martin's persona, uh, Dean Martin's persona, it just really, really works. And then much like any sort of rock star who, you know, whose act, if you want to call it that, is based more on sort of a, a youthful rebelliousness, a youthful energy, a, a dancing around, a moving around, right? Once you age out of that, it's it's really tough if you don't have that other sort of gear to rely on. So what's interesting is as he ages, you get this sense of, in some ways, he wants to try the, the more adult roles, but then the real, quote unquote, real him comes through, right? The one who is arrogant, the one who is extremely confident, you know, the one who is probably a real taskmaster to deal with because, you know, to give him some credit, although it sounds like in his personal life, he was he was kind of a terrible, terrible guy, you know, he's very, very kind of cruel in some ways. 
But at least in a professional situation, he probably was right in a lot of ways. Although, and the problem here is, is not in all ways, you know, not in all ways. So just very interesting sort of biography, fascinating to watch his career go, go forward. Okay, so let's do the quick focus here on, 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 on what I want to really talk about. And that's the three versions of the Jerry Lewis show. So in the 50s, he and Dean Martin, when television is brand new, he, they show up to co-host, I believe it's Colgate Comedy Hour. And they are very successful at it, very beloved. Because remember, TV's new at that point. It is, we're still trying a lot of things, but we're also borrowing a lot of what had been there, which was either radio or vaudeville. And so I think their act really works and their charisma really works on TV. He does a few solo specials on TV, which are also considered, quote unquote, the Jerry Lewis show, although it's a special one-off throughout the years in the late 50s. And, and uh, right, I think he does one last one uh, right before 1963. And then in that fall of 1963, um, what happens is, is uh, ABC goes after Lewis. This is Jerry Lewis, the mega solo comedy film star right he's been on his own away from martin he's proven that he himself is a box office draw so abc absolutely throws a dump truck full of money at him i've tried to verify some of these numbers but honestly a lot of the different sources are a little different so i'm not going to cite a specific figure but basically what they did is abc bought a theater for lewis to do the show in and that was anywhere from $400,000 to maybe over half a million dollars. And then they paid him millions upon millions of dollars. And I've seen anywhere from quoted at $8 million to an entire full lifetime of the contract being the equivalent of $75 million. So point is, lots and lots and lots of money. It was also really, really advertised that he signed this contract and this was ABC's plan for the fall of 63. So there was a crazy amount of scrutiny on the show. The interesting thing here is we get the first sort of sense of Lewis's hubris. The other two networks also threw money at him, but it was never enough because he wanted not only crazy amounts of money, but he also wanted a full amount of control and he wanted to be on Saturday nights and absolutely live and long. So basically what happens is he's, they renovate, and I should say is all those millions they paid him, part of that was for so him to even do further modifications to the theater so it was exactly the way he wanted it. It premieres in fall of 63 in September, and basically from a technical standpoint, a bunch of things go wrong. But the bigger issue is that Lewis, in probably a combination of his ego and maybe a little laziness, I don't know, he's like, he doesn't really script a whole lot of it. He just wants to kind of ad-lib for long, long, uh, for this long, long show. So you can find it on YouTube. It's not hard to find. It's, it's, not, it's easy to find. But it's basically Lewis kind of going up there, being charming, doing a monologue, doing silly stuff about his ideas of comedy. And, and again, some of it actually is really good ideas. But it's just basically him going, yeah, I'm good enough of, mas uh, of mastering and controlling a stage that I can keep this so entertaining for this long without a lot of help. 
And that's crazy. That's insane. So it's a lot of him just sort of talking about the fact that everyone is is talking about him uh, wanting to go this long and that they're paying so much money and that it's never going to work and how could it possibly work, etc. So it's like in this moment, you start to see those two sides of him. You see the you know, juvenile sort of comedic persona that made him so successful and so endearing, but then the super confident real side of him who's like, of course I'm awesome, of course I'm great, and I'm going to kind of throw it in your face, and don't you worry, I'll get you through this, right? So other people have written about this extensively, but the, the Cliff Notes version here is the show is literally canceled after the first night <laughs> for show. And he actually referenced this, references this during his second show. I believe they originally signed him up for 40 show contract, or it was either 30 or 40 show contract, and uh, they got nowhere near that. Now, obviously, part of that is fall of 63 is Kennedy assassination, so a lot of shows weren't run in certain weeks about that time. But honestly, even without that, this show wasn't, you know, this show wasn't going to last. It was too expensive. It was too public of an expectation. And Lewis, you know, again, I, to, I don't know if you need to be fair to somebody who, again, has been thought of as, as so cruel in, in so many ways in his personal life. But to be somewhat fair to him, I mean, some of his ideas are really good. And he had pulled off so many things that that part of him you want to be like, yeah, you should give this guy a bunch of money because he might really come up with something interesting that no one else had been doing at that point on TV. But then the other side of him is you're like, Jesus Christ, man, you're, you've set yourself up for this huge failure. Why can't you work within the parameter? Why can't you help yourself through structure and format? So very, very sort of interesting, big, colossal failure. And it's nice that we do have some recordings of it available on YouTube. Okay, very quickly... We shift to four years later, we jump networks to NBC, and we again try The Jerry Lewis Show. Context, of course, is that his old, uh, his old partner, Dean Martin, was fabulously successful on his own variety show, and uh, some of Lewis's friends uh, wanted to get him back in the fold. They thought uh, he could work. So over at NBC, he does a very, you know, if you've ever seen any programming from the late 60s, it feels very much of its time, but it doesn't feel too different either, meaning it's not quite the groundbreaking thing that he was trying in 63. It's in color as opposed to black and white. And for the most part, he tries to play to his strengths. It's a lot of character work of the types of characters he did in his movies that you know he plays well. He's trying to rely a little bit more on guest stars to help him through sketches and bits. Of course, there's lots of like, you know, youth or symbols of youth, right? Lots of the, the, the bikini go-go dancing kind of thing that you'd see in like an Elvis movie or something at that time. And what you also have is sort of the traditional guest stars. So I know the one I was list, uh, watching, rather, and I believe it was the first episode, is they had Sonny and Cher, right? Big pop act at the time to help them get through uh, some moments, do some comedy, do some music. And this show, this version, actually lasted two seasons, which admittedly isn't crazy long, but for someone whose career was really in the early to mid-50s, and yeah, he had been a huge star in the early 60s, but about, you know, in show business, five, six, seven years, that's, that's a lifetime. Uh, the fact that he could come back in 67 to 69 and do decent, you know, not, not fabulously great, but, but decent, uh, I think sort of 
leads lends credence rather to this idea that you know you have to meet him he has to meet him meet his production people halfway right like it can't all be him and if he's willing to play the game a little bit and 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 own up to some of his limitations then it can be a little more a little more successful but <laughs> here's the whole reason beyond the themes that i mentioned in the beginning here's the whole reason that i want to do this show and i think i teased this last mini episode i never knew this happened and it also connects to some in other ways to tv history but in june 1984 after he'd had his little career resurgence by appearing in scorsese's king of comedy and as he started appearing again in some french films and he'd show up again on johnny carson etc and and i i forgot to mention earlier as part of the reason he originally got the t- the tonight uh, the late night show in 63 was because he guest hosted between Jack Parr and Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show and did really, really well. So that was also why they threw so much money at him. Anyway, early 80s, he's showing up again on Johnny Carson. And it's not that he's back back, but he definitely has more career, more of a career resurgence or life to it than, than he had in years. Because at that point, it was sort of like just the telethon stuff. So what's interesting is, is in June of 84... He actually does five test shows, records five test shows for Metro Media for a possible syndicated talk, late night talk show. And there's two pieces of TV history context here that might be of interest to you. The first is this is when Alan Thicke was trying to do his own talk show, Thick of the Night. It was, you know, after Johnny Carson had sort of hit his peak in the 70s. He started to weaken, and there started to be this idea that you could chip away at Johnny, especially once Letterman was started ushering in the newer generation. So Thick tried his shot; it didn't work. But then later, you know, Pat Sajak would try his shot, etc. So Jerry Lewis is in that moment, right? He's like, "Oh, maybe, I'll, maybe this could work. You know, give this a shot." A syndicated package. The other reason it's interesting is Metro Media, those uh, owned and operated TV stations. They were what the Dumont-owned and operated stations were, right? They started out as Dumont O&Os. Then when Dumont folded, uh, they became Metro Media. And then uh, I believe a year later, yeah, a year later, Metro Media gets bought out and they become the basic infrastructure for the new fourth network of Fox. So interesting that it's Metro Media. Anywho, so I didn't know this existed. I never knew he did five test shows in June 84. And this is where this idea of like not, you know, this tension between not listening to or listening to yourself and going, I've done this before. I can do it again. Right. I've been successful and I, my instincts are right versus the fact that at that point, Lewis was 58 years old trying to do a talk show. Now, admittedly, Johnny was older, too, but like doing a talk show and he's doing the same material that he would do like 30 years ago. And it's just. It's, to use that term again, it is cringeworthy or cringy, as the kiddos say. So this is what made me laugh, is his sidekick is, uh, I always forget his first name, I think it's Charlie Collis. Uh, he's doing shtick as his warm-up uh, announcer intro guy that would have been stale 10 years ago, 15 years ago, prior to 84, and it's certainly stale now. I mean, it is it is bad. Now, you don't know if it's an actual scripted moment or an ad lib i tend to believe it's an ad lib 
But it's so bad and goes on so long that even Lewis himself from behind the the door or the curtain or whatever he comes out of, I don't remember at this moment, uh, you know, he basically says, get on with it already, you know. So the warm-up guy feels fossilized, like it's bad. The band leader, it's the same band leader that he had on the other variety shows. Now, don't get me wrong, the guy might be fantastic as a band leader, but there's no energy there, right? It's just somebody else from the past. And then, and this is where it felt like uh, uh, Martin Short doing a bit of Jerry Lewis, is during the monologue, Lewis is holding one of those novelty cans that are meant to look like peanut brittle, but has a, a toy snake in it. And you're sitting there, or sitting there watching it as he stands there, and you're thinking to yourself, no, no, it, it can't be that on the nose. It can't be that obvious, right? This is going to be... He's going to show how much of a genius he is, right, at comedy, right? He's going to subvert this in some way, and you're going to, like, for one moment of an otherwise train wreck of a, of a broadcast, you're going to go, wow, that one bit, that really worked. Nope. <laughs> he literally does snake in a can bit. And he jokes about it afterwards, like, oh, what did you expect, right? But, like, really? Like, that's what it is? And then... And I, then he, you know, has to do a desk segment, right? Just because that's that's the format of the time. And he literally does the old where he puts the entire uh, drinking glass in his mouth. And you're like, what are we doing? Like, I mean, that for for his caliber of comedian and all the bits and materials he's thought up and tried to do, that's what you're going to do. Like again, this sort of juvenile, childish sort of thing. And then I admit, because I was running a little uh, out of time a little bit as I prepped this episode, I was going to watch the entire segment with, because supposedly the big get, which of course didn't save the show because the show never became anything beyond those five episodes, but the big get was he actually got Frank Sinatra to show up and be a guest. I didn't watch the entire thing. I just watched a little back and forth with him and Sinatra. But, you know, some of the criticism of the episode of the time was that it just seemed too much. And it's sort of like something you'd see on SCTV at the time where the Sammy Maudlin show, which is a send up of Sammy Davis, where all it is is them just congratulating one another and lauding each other. It's basically that. It's just it's just Lewis going, oh, thanks so much. You're so great to that you're willing to come here and da, da, da. And I know you'd never do a talk show before and blah, blah, blah. And him saying, oh, you're marvelous, marvelous. You know, this is going to be great. I hope this show runs. And oh, you're, you know. Like, there's nothing interesting or charming, which should be because Sinatra was such a, you know, dynamite performer and what a legendary career and all that. And he could probably have a lot of stories and, and, and all that. But I assume it, it, it never quite gets there, right? It's just sort of a, a showbiz phoniness to it all. And uh, what was interesting, I was, I was looking up one of the uh, uh, New York Times. Again, this didn't actually get produced, produced, but they did test shows in, in the markets, the syndicated markets. So there is a New York Times review from that time, and uh, 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 the uh, reviewer ends his review uh, by, by writing uh, about Lewis, a bit heavier, wearing glasses and sporting a hefty pinky ring, Mr. Lewis certainly has the courage of his limitations. And I thought that was a beautiful way to sort of sort of encapsulate that, because yeah, like again, to be somewhat fair to him, he was successful before. You would want to think that if you'd done it before, you can do it again. But then there's also this weird thing about being of your time, of your culture, and can you adapt, right? Can you take what is good 
that you offer, that's unique that you offer, and can you do it in a new format, a new way, or at least bend a little bit or meet the new version halfway? So, I don't know, it, it, it's a colossal flop, it, it's barely watchable, you know, it, it, it's bad. But I just find it fascinating as a character study for that kind of career, that kind of life. And uh, going back to the idea that he did a lot of crap <laughs> in his career, apparently. He also ends up directing a bunch of episodes of some show I'd never heard of in the early 90s. And just out of pure curiosity, I may I may force Steve or somebody to, to watch that with me and, and maybe we'll do an episode about it. It's, it's it, it, I'm sure it's just absolutely something you'd find like on a mystery science theater or, or how did this get made or something. So, so really, really, really interesting. All right. So looking at the time, I've taken you a little bit longer than I, I originally expected to. If you've stayed through with this, stayed through on this with me, I do appreciate it. Again, we'll be back uh, next week with another Mining the Archive Monday. You're, uh, I'm not going to spoil that yet. I like that could be a bit of a surprise for you at this point before we start the new uh, season. And then we'll be back again with another mini episode. And then before you know it, if you look in this feed, you'll start to see brand new full episodes, uh, many with uh, guests, uh, uh, some without. And we will be rolling right along into the new, uh, the new season of Inside the Box. So thank you again for listening. I encourage you to seek out some of these crazy things that I mentioned on Lewis and his career on YouTube. A lot of it is there, thank God. Uh, I may or may not embed some on the show website. Honestly, I'm trying to save myself a little time on these mini episodes. So I'm, I'm not embedding as much as I do with a full episode, uh, which you'll see uh, soon. But... Uh, For those who stayed with us, thanks again. This is Jonathan Bullinger, and I will catch you next time. Bye-bye.